Welcome to the 112th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In Ear to the Ground episodes 94 and 95, we featured Look Who's Knockin', a one-act play developed by the Land Stewardship Project. The play raises questions around land ethics and the moral dilemma posed by wanting to get top dollar for selling one's land while desiring to help the next generation of farmers get started farming. Created out of numerous interviews and real-world stories of both beginning and retiring farmers, the play uses humor, storytelling, and the common everyday tension in an elderly farm couple's relationship to prompt personal reflection and community discussion in the audience. The play features Gerald and Nettie Dietrich, who over the past 50 years have built up an award-winning conservation farm. They're now struggling with whether to sell it to a large cash cropper in the neighborhood for top dollar, or give a young couple an opportunity to launch a new, diverse farming enterprise. During the past 12 months, LSP has been presenting Look Who's Knocking performances in southeast Minnesota, western Wisconsin, and most recently, western Minnesota. After each performance, LSP organizers lead audience discussions about the issues brought up by Gerald and Nettie. Audience members also talk about what steps can be taken to help the next generation of farmers get access to farmland. On a recent wintry Sunday afternoon, I attended a Look Who's Knockin' performance in the western Minnesota community of Madison. After the play, local farmers and other rural residents of all ages held a spirited discussion about the future of family farming in the region. After the discussion, I chatted with Carmen Fernholtz, a local farmer who directed the play during its run in western Minnesota. Look Who's Knockin' hits close to home for Fernholtz, who's 68. He and his wife Sally began farming in the Madison area in 1972, and over the years, they've emerged as pioneers in organic crop production. Continuing the farm's legacy is important to Carmen and Sally, and in recent years, they've begun discussing the future of the operation with their four adult children. Carmen and I talked about some of the issues the play brought up and how the Fernholtz family is preparing for the future. Sally and I have been farming since 1972. We started out with about 80 acres, and then over the next 15 years accumulated uh, an additional acreage which today is right at about 450 acres including owned and rented. Of that about 300 is tillable and I just had to add this little sidebar because it's something interesting something I never thought of when I started farming but in the recent past I'm talking the last two or three years I've had several people come up to me and ask me very pleadingly if I would rent their land so they could keep it organic. Some of the issues that uh, uh, Nady and Gerald brought up and then some of the issues that were brought up in the discussion afterwards, um, it sounds like they really resonate um, with you personally, with your situation, and with the community at large. Are you seeing your this generation, your generation of people who maybe got started in the 70s really starting to deal with, wrestle with this this. Uh, situation of the legacy that you're going to leave here in the future? Yes, I think we are really starting to wrestle with it. And it's interesting because I started farming in 1972, as I said, and it was from that period of 19, early 1970s through the early 1980s, uh, we had a spike in good farm prices. And what happened over just a short period of time is a lot of People my age saw an opportunity to come back and start farming in some relation with their family or get involved and have access to some land. Well, people my age now, 68, we are starting to look at 
what are we going to do? Because obviously we're not going to be farming anymore. So there are a good number of people my age who came into farming in the early 70s and now have to see how they're going to be able to phase out. So it is something, I think, very pertinent to today's uh, farming community. And we had a, a good discussion after the play here about some of the barriers to maybe passing that on that farm to a younger uh, generation and and then also some ideas for maybe how that could be, be done. What were some of the things that struck you as far as what people were talking about uh, as far as some of the barriers, I guess, that that really hit home with you? It, it definitely hit home with me, the, the barriers. And I think the first one that really comes to mind is the especially in the last uh, 18 months, the escalating price of farmland, obviously brought on by the higher grain prices that we've experienced and now the livestock prices. Uh, it seems to put the pressure on, uh, and it's really putting the pressure on people my age who are looking at where we can go and, and what we can do uh, to you know, assure our take, being taken care of into the future. But how do we uh, pass this on to the rest? It's, it's something very disturbing, I guess you might say. But the other thing that I think started coming out besides the pr- uh, price or the cost of land is just the cost of equipment. When we look at, obviously, state-of-the-art combine, big combine, obviously. I was talking to a dealer the other day. We're talking $750,000 for a piece of equipment that you might use two weeks to three weeks out of the year. Now, obviously, you don't need that kind of equipment, but the thing that's behind that is the machinery manufacturers are making equipment geared for large acreages as well. And it kind of fall, falls into place. The transportation system is geared towards that. The marketing system, and all of that is geared to the larger operations. So younger people see that and they're like, well, that's the only way I'm going to get into agriculture. And so it doesn't really look like an option right now. There was some, a couple ideas that were thrown around. People were talking about creating trusts, um, that type of thing. And one of the things that struck me was situations where maybe farmers of your generation, and it sounds like you're kind of in this situation too, who don't have kids who are interested in taking over the farm. And yet they want to have some kind of an option where maybe they can still keep that in the family in case there's a future generation, grandkids or whatever, or somebody else maybe in the neighborhood who is interested in coming in and taking over the farm. That's a really interesting take on it because if you do lose, it's like there's a gap there, and if you can somehow get over that gap, uh, there's some real possibilities because we do seem to sometimes see that where they're, it's not the kids, but it's the kids of the kids, that kind of thing. What you described is exactly what my wife Sally and I have, have really gone through over the last three to four years. We were carrying on a discussion very similar to the dialogue in this play. And over that period of time, we did talk to uh, planners. We talked to lawyers. We read a lot of things. Uh, I have to say that some of the farm magazines have a lot of good information in them today dealing with this. And the very thought that you described as well of how we can bridge what I would call the mindset of land ownership and access to land today, how we can bridge that to the next generation to allow that generation to have more uh, readily accessible opportunities to the land. That's what really what we thought about. And so we did the, uh, the whole uh, limited partnership. And what we're in the process of doing is gifting the land to our children And in a sense, putting the responsibility then onto them to see how they can, in fact, move the access of land to the next generation. We call it a limited partnership. 
term that we usually use is gifting. Tax laws say that you can gift up to currently $13,000 per spouse per child. And so what we did is put in sort of theoretical value on the land that we've got. And so then we can gift a portion of that each year over a five to six year period because that's how long it would take because basically what we've got is we figured the land close to a million dollars worth right now. And so we're gifting that over that period of time. And what it does then, it it protects the land from being taken away from us. uh, And at the same time, it gives them responsibility for it. But the beautiful part about it is that Sally and I maintain all of this decision-making of that land. In fact, worst-case scenario, we could, in turn, we could sell that land today if we chose. But the value that we sold it at would still belong to the children. It's, it's much more flexible than what we talked about today, the irrevocable trust. The irrevocable trust is fixed. And I differentiate that from a, a revocable trust, which can be changed. But a revocable trust does not protect the estate should something uh, catastrophic happen to you as the owner. The other thing that we're hopeful is maybe the whole uh, idea of who should own the land, what size uh, operations the farms should be, maybe that mindset mindset will start shifting. And I like to really parallel it to organics. And I only use it as a model because in the early 70s, organics wasn't even talked about to speak of. It, it was somewhere out there. But today, it has become a very acceptable movement. The mindset has changed. And that was sort of in the back of our minds. Maybe the mindset of more people making decisions on the land will come back again in the next generation. But you have to have some kind of a uh... I guess, a bridge between that, because if it's it gets sold to the highest bidder, you know, the buildings are going to be torn out and it's going to be part of a bigger operation. And you've kind of lost that opportunity, it seems like. Absolutely. That, and that was what was behind uh, our thinking of it. If we sell it today, the decision is done. We, we haven't thought out to the next generation. Whereas if we can sort of together put that uh, idea, that responsibility, that mindset to are to the next generation, then we have at least maintained the potential or the opportunity. I don't want to get too deep into your personal business or whatever, but how how much longer do you, I guess I want to give people an idea how far ahead you need to start having this discussion. I mean, how many years down the road do you think you'll be farming if things go well with your health and everything? And, and how tough of a discussion was that with with your kids? Do you have four kids, is it? Yeah, yeah I mean, how did that all how far ahead did you start thinking, okay, we've got to have this discussion? I think it happened, oh, maybe, you know, probably the first conversations were maybe four or five years ago. Maybe a few years after my siblings and I had gone through the whole irrevocable trust discussion with with our family. And so it started, Sally and I, thinking. But this, the real serious discussion probably started about three and a half to four years ago. And that's when we really started thinking about, you know, where we, where we wanted to go. And if my health stays, I would like to be able to farm another four or five years. I'm 68 now, but if I can farm up almost actually till 75, I'd like to do it because I've provided the opportunity. And when we look at the mechanization that's out there, when we look at how uh, Sally and I have established ourselves quite well on the farm, I mean, we're living comfortable, that part should be there. What I think we've also opened up the possibility of is 
let's say two or three years from now, I say, well, I would really like just to walk away from the land. I have an opportunity then to try and mentor someone other than my direct uh, family to operate that land with the understanding that should my children's children, my grandchildren want to come back to the land, that it would be there. So we've created both of those possibilities, and uh, who knows where it can take us in. I wonder if part of this, on the kind of on the more positive side, you know, there is a lot of barriers out there, but with this huge interest in local foods, organics, we had a couple of young farmers here, not as many as we'd like, but, you know, there was a few here who had some, you know, seemed to be a lot of energy there. If that may be, if, if a lot of this, a lot of the ways of removing barriers is if some farmers of your generation can see that energy out there and go, okay, there is an interest out there. We aren't the last of a dying breed kind of thing. That's exactly right. And I think that's what's excited me about the whole local foods movement, if you want to call it that, I think we're starting to create an interest again in food. Uh, I think what, we, what we're seeing is the beginnings of what I hope will be a maturing mindset change, much like, as I mentioned earlier, the maturing mindset change we saw in organics over the last 30 and 40 years. I'm hoping that that will happen with local foods production as well. Yeah, I gotta say, it's kind of weird to see organic farmers who you know, I always thought of them as kind of the young whippersnappers, but, you know, just they were the kind of the new ideas and whatever. And now they're dealing with these retirement issues. It's kind of funny to see that. It is, you know, and it's, it's so gratifying. About 10 years ago was when the first local farmer came to me to talk about organics. And it seemed it's so beautiful to see how that has mushroomed in the last few years. And again, I come back to, I hope and I'm really optimistic that that will happen in local foods. And once we start really appreciating local foods, I think we'll, we'll appreciate local production, everything that goes with it. At the beginning of our interview, you said you've had people approach you about renting their land because they want to keep it organic. I think that's a, that's a, that's a good point because we run into uh, either people who are retiring farmers or their kids who have ended up inheriting land or somehow have ownership of some farmland. And that is a message that we're getting a little bit more and more is people who are interested in seeing that land taken care of. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting belief out there. And people are there. The people do want to do the right thing by the land and continue that, say, conservation legacy or stewardship legacy. But they're trying to figure out financially, common sense wise, how they can do that. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the People today talked about the idea of, of farmers having to be business people, that farming is a business, and so you can't become attached to the land. His but on that statement was, but if you're a good farmer, you can't help but become attached to the land. And when you become attached to the land, you, you, know, you really want to take care of it. I think that's the thing that many of us want to make sure we pass on to the next generation, is that they, in fact, take care of it. And I have to say that my father and my uncles were tremendous in conveying that legacy onto us into the next generation. And that's a legacy I think many of us want to convey to the, to the next generation. For more information on Look Who's Knocking, see www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org 
or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 